Welcome to the Royal Tax Podcast with your hosts, Megan Templeton, Royal Legal Solutions Consulting Attorney, and Royal Legal Solutions CPA, MBA, and CFO, Pete Schindley. Each week, they talk about how to take your tax and financial strategy to the next level and learn how to build and scale your real estate investing business in a way that maximizes your returns and minimizes your taxes. This is for informational use only. For direct questions, please contact us or your local tax CPA accountant. Thanks, everyone, for coming to today's uh, presentation on the Royal Tax. Um, Unfortunately, Megan won't be able to be here today, so you're stuck with just me kind of hosting, presenting, and answering questions. So hopefully it goes smooth. Um, one of the things we're going to cover today is uh, cost segregation studies and kind of give you a rundown of what it is, how they kind of happen, and then the benefits to them. And then after that presentation, we'll open it up to maybe if anyone on this call has done a cost segregation study, they could share their experience. And then from there, we'll just kind of field questions regarding the cost segregation and any other pressing topics before the tax deadline. And um, that's what I'd like to discuss in the breakout rooms today. Um, when you're in your groups, if you guys want to come up or decide any ideas on what you're most worried about for this upcoming tax deadline of 415 or if they're if you're going to have an extension what are you worried about on that or if you guys aren't worried about any items coming up for this this tax deadline just kind of discuss what's going on and sharing your knowledge with the other members in the group all right well what i'm going to do is have ken uh, pull up the presentation and hopefully it doesn't Caused too much heresy on that book you recommended, Matt. So, <laughs> um, let me know when you're ready, Ken. And if you have issues, I can uh, pull it up on my end. All right, as mentioned earlier and kind of talked about, I'm sure we'll have some good conversation afterward. Is uh, I just threw a couple slides together for a cost segregation. Um, Ken, if you'll move to the next slide. Um, what is cost segregation? Cost segregation is, in essence, a tax deferral strategy that front loads depreciation and it allows you to, to take deductions of real estate assets in the earlier years of ownership. But what it does is it takes a property and it chunks it up by assets. And certain assets have lower tax years, you know, 5, 7, 10, 15, and 27 and a half. So the study goes into an apartment complex, a house, a commercial building and they will identify what assets can be classified in each uh, depre depreciation year schedule and come up with a value. Um, usually this results in significant tax sa uh, savings for individuals that do a cost segregation study. Um, Ken, if you can go to the next slide. Um, as I kind of touched on earlier, there is tax benefits to it. Um, Really, it's deriving and identifying what the short life property is. So short life property in this example could be carpet. Um, that's not a 27 and a half year asset. That could be a five year asset, a seven year asset, or you can maybe get 100% bonus depreciation during the current year, depending on the tax law. Um, usually when you do reclassify assets into the short life property, um, you can get about a 10 to 40% of the depreciable basis. 
moved up early in the years. So as Matt mentioned earlier, you know, his first couple of years of doing the cost segregation, he had huge passive losses, which he could carry forward. So um, there are benefits to doing it. Um, again, really the main benefit is more depreciation in the front years, lowers your taxable income if you're a real estate professional, or it increases your passive losses that you can carry forward indefinitely or until you run them out. Uh, if you could go to the next slide, Ken. Um, just with everything, there is also pitfalls of a cost segregation study. Um, one of the pitfalls is if you do a study and you sell it in a more near term than long term with let's say under three to five years, you could end up having to pay um, depreciation recapture, which could be a higher number if you sold it outright and didn't do a 1031 exchange because you took more depreciation on the front end your basis is lower. When you go to sell, you have a higher capital gain. And that could be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, depending on when you do the sell or the cost segregation study. So you could actually end up paying more in taxes when you sell. Again, that can all be wiped away if you do 1031. Um, <clears throat> sometimes though, if you do do the cost segregation and kind of the consensus I saw online was you have to keep the property three to five years to really get your money out of it because of that depreciation recapture, but also the amount of money you paid to an engineer or a CPA or a company to do the cost segregation study. Usually three to five years, if you keep the property, you'll get your return on investment um, in most instances. Now there's always exceptions if you did a warehouse most likely that's gonna be longer than five years to recoup because they're not gonna have that many short-term assets in it as a, a house or apartment complex would. And then the biggest pitfall is if the taxing authority does not agree with how your cost segregation study was done. So what the IRS could say is the assets that you put as a five-year asset or a 15-year asset, they could say, no, that's not correct. That's a 27 and a half year asset. Or they could say it's a 15-year asset instead of a five. So they may come in and you may end up having to owe taxes and then a little fine or percent on taxes not paid if the IRS disagrees with your study. So, but again, regardless of what we do, we're always subject to penalties by the IRS if they disagree with how we file. But that's just one of the potential pitfalls of a cost segregation study. All right, thanks, Ken, for moving the slide. The next slide talks us kind of about the process of how a cost segregation study works. So the first step is a feasibility analysis. So this is kind of where you reach out to your CPA, your financial advisor, or you enter in TurboTax and do it yourself if you're savvy with that. And you kind of see what your current tax position is and tax liabilities. And then you kind of enter in property characteristics in your head to come up with, oh, I bought this house for X amount. We'll assume 20% is a five-year asset, 15% is a 20-year asset and so forth. And then you can kind of run models and scenarios at a very high level to kind of see if the study is even worth going into the next step. So usually going to the feasibility analysis, a lot of that's just a free consult where you can talk and meet with someone to determine high level, yeah, I may save money doing this. 
Then the next step is where you've committed. And sometimes these are broken into two steps, but I have it here as one. And that's to gather and analyze. So it's pretty self-explanatory. You gather the information. So by gathering the information is you get the appraisal, you pay for an appraisal. If you haven't had one for a while, you look at the purchasing documents. If it was a remodel, you can look at the general contractor and you can see what they paid for if you were replacing carpet or cabinets. Um, you get the cost of the project that way and you start making notes. Um, if you buy a new house, sometimes the general contractor or the builder, they, they can provide you a kind of a list of what each item costs and then you can group it that way. Um, sometimes examining the property also helps and that's where the engineer or the CPA or yourself can go examine the property, get the square footage, get the type of materials. Is it a wood floor or the cabinets? What type of cabinets are there? The tile, are there extra lights installed? Um, you know, you kind of just take pretty much a detailed information of what is on the property. And then you start classifying those into different um, asset classes. And then what happens is once that is done by the person doing the cost segregation study, they'll provide you a report. And the report should be a pretty in-depth report that explains here are the assets for five years, here are the assets for seven, 15, 27 and a half. They should explain on the report, hey, this is what their methodology was. It could be a fair market value. They may have a formula or an algorithm that they use to project what costs are based on previous cost segregation studies. Um, a civil engineer can maybe go bid it out. Um, it just kind of, they just need on the report, make sure they just explain how they did the methodology. And then in that report, they should also list the tax law and sections that support why they're putting each asset into that class. So um, what, what you want there in essence is that report to be very detailed. So if you do get audited and the IRS does just do a disagreement, you can show them that report and argue, this is why it was done this way. Because more likely than not, the cost segregation person who did the study won't be talking to the IRS for you. So you want kind of the report to have all the details possible. All right, Ken, could you go to the next slide? All right, thank you. So in the first examples, this is kind of the ordinary, I just bought a house for 175,000. That's the house structure portion, doesn't include the land. And if you were to take the normal 27 and a half year depreciation, you know, you get 636, 600, $6,363.64 in depreciation expense for the year. So as you all know, you take off, you got your rent, minus your profit, minus your repairs, maintenance, management fees, and so forth, and then you minus depreciation. Hopefully you're ending up with a negative number or at zero. And that's what this depreciation amount is in this example, which is your typical set amount for 27 and a half years as long as you keep the property and don't do any substantial updates. Using the next slide, Ken. Um, <clears throat> using the example two, it's the same house, same situation, but there was a cost segregation study done. And what this study said is there's building components, site improvements, and building structures. So the building components, according to the cost segregation study, is about 22,000 of that 175,000. And again, building components are cabinets, molding, flooring, wood, or laminate, 
accent lighting, window treatments, appliances. If you do anything specialty, any specialty items for HVAC systems or electrical systems above the standard, those would fall under that building component. So this 22,000 would be divided by five years. Um, side improvements, those are 15 year assets and those are kind of like sidewalks, driveways, exterior fencing, shrubbery bushes. And those are a 15 year um, depreciation schedule. So this 7,500 would be depreciated by 15 years. And then everything else is in the building structure, which gets that typical 27 and a half years. So building structure, that's doors, flame, uh, framing, painting, roof, foundations, windows, you know, kind of most of the house costs. So in this example, by doing a cost segregation study, they actually the first year have $10,218,000 in depreciation. So that went from about $6,300 to $10,000. So they almost increased their depreciation $4,000 the first year. Um, so the first five years, you would have an extra $20,000 in depreciation. So the first five years, you know, your passive losses would grow or be $20,000 higher over a five-year period, which depending on if you're a real estate professional or just a passive investor, you know, that can affect your active income or it can just keep carrying losses forward. But as you see, after 15 years, you'll just be using the building structure at 27 and a half years. So instead of having that 6,300, you'll probably be below closer to that 4,000 a year. So that's where I think Matt was talking in his example is as he gets later on in the life of the property, you do have less depreciation, but the goal is to keep adding property and growing your real estate empire to where cost segregation studies keep coming on and you end up not having less depreciation. Um, next slide, Ken. So really what you need to ask yourself is, do you need a cost segregation study? Want more information? Join our community groups that exist to provide a space for like-minded people on a similar journey to learn, share, and network with real estate investing professionals and entrepreneurs. We meet weekly for an hour in Zoom to offer knowledge and accountability. Be sure to grab the link in our show notes. Again, I'm, the favorite answer I have to give, it depends. No one likes that answer, but it, it does depend on your situation. If you're going to get rid of the property within a year or two, might not be worth it, especially if it's a big commercial property, because there's a lot of cost depreciation that you might not be able to take. Um, depending on your tax strategy for the long term, um, if you want to carry passive losses forward for the long term and have it just be levelized and not have to worry about the swings, a cost segregation study might not be the way to go. Um, if you are a real estate professional and you do have high active income, it, it might be better to do a cost segregation study, regardless of the time horizon of how long you plan to keep the property, because it lowers your taxable, taxable burden today, which gives you more money in your pocket that you can go invest and earn a return on. So that's where I kind of say it just depends on your tax strategy if you're a real estate professional and kind of the long-term outlook for that property or your portfolio of properties. Hey, Pete, I, I might have misheard something, but if you could just clarify, you said yeah. if you have high active income, why not if you have high passive income? 
It can also um, apply. It can also deduct off passive income as well. Yeah. Okay. So most instances, um, people with the passive income are usually having have losses because of the depreciation, so they don't have to have um, larger losses in passive income. But if you're retired and you do have really good properties that are performing high, you would probably want to take this then to create more of a loss to offset that passive income. Right, right. I, I guess I'm speaking selfishly because I have very old properties where the basis is so low, there's just not a lot of, there's nothing to appreciate anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, if the property is old and like you said, your basis is zero, there, there's no point in doing a cost segregation study. Um, but those properties with low basis, you're probably making a good return on. So your newer properties, even though it's all passive income, you would probably want to do segregation to help lower your high performing older properties. Or if you're remodeling that older stuff and all of a sudden you've got more stuff to depreciate again. Correct. And a remodel, um, depending on what you remodel, those usually could fall under the five-year asset. Or depending on the tax year, you might be able to do a, a one, the bonus depreciation at 100%. So yeah, depending on the asset and avoid the whole cost segregation study at that point. Hmm, I, didn't, I didn't consider that. So I'm, I'm doing about a million in rehab on about 20 properties and they're all old, old properties. I haven't talked to my accountant about this yet, but I'm assuming we should do an additional cost seg. Um, yeah, you could do a cost segregation or depending on what type of assets you're remodeling in there. All rentals. Um, you could do a section 179, which is like 100% bonus depreciation. Is that limited to a certain number of money or a certain amount of in, uh, under a certain amount of income or anything like that? Or no, I, I believe by year it's under a million. So not all your assets you could do under that. You mean if you make, you have to make under a million or that you can only do up to 1 million? Of cost I, think up, I think up to 1 million is what that is. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. But again, if, you may want to put them all on a five-year asset and spread it out. It really just depends on kind of the tax situation. If yeah, I'm a risk professional, so I assume what I can't use, if anything, I can just carry forward, right? I Correct. Mean, yes. I, I was a little taken back earlier. Was it was it Jeff or no? It was, um, it was Matt who who mentioned that switching over to a real estate professional status would mess that up. Or did you catch that too, Pete? I, I wasn't quite sure where he was going with that. Yeah, he was saying when he went from a passive investor and was going to go to or passive income, which was a not real estate professional, when he was going over to a real estate professional, he was losing some of his uh, passive losses. And I'd have to get more details from Matt to that the opposite? Kind, of, kind of learn what happened there. Yeah, I'm confused. It's usually the opposite. It was an odd calculation because of carry forward losses. If I was a real estate professional, my tax liability actually went up versus passive income. It was just an odd. And if it wasn't that I had those front loaded passive losses sitting on there, it wouldn't have worked that way. But just because of that, it was the oddest thing. I had to research it online and there was this small tax group and they're like, oh yeah, that's like one weird situation that can happen with this new law. It has something to do with the Trump uh, business, small business deduction or something. 
So like you, the more, uh, the higher their profit, the more of a deduction you can take. And so it was just something about how it got classified. But I, I think it's just like a one in a million type things. But that really stumped me when I went to active income. I, thought I just kind of switched it over and then it recalculated. Yeah. Yeah. It was the small business. The Trump hmm. small business deductions. Like, I think I, it came up in 2019 or 18. That's still going on. I think this is yeah, like, still going on, but that yeah. was a weird situation for that tax year. It made more sense for me not to be uh, a real. Yeah, if you ever get more clarification on that, because I'm still a bit lost. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know how that fits. And and only I just because I bounce around between the two as well, um, between active and passive. I mean, I have both, but I declare active more just so that I can have more write-offs. But in your case. I mean, I might be missing something. I might be paying more tax than I need to by doing that. So if you get any more clarification, selfishly, well, no, the group, I mean, everybody can learn from that. So. Yeah. It had to do with, um, because the more profits you make and your small business deduction, the more the, that percentage can be written off as a deduction. So are you talking about the qualified business income? Yeah, yeah that was it. Okay. Yeah. So... Kind of high, oh, high I, see. oh I, I see it. I see it is that because you get the 20% off now, it's better not to take the depreciation and lose out on that additional 20%. You want to carry it forward even more into the future when you don't have that 20% off of, uh, of yeah, the small business. Uh, okay. I, I think I caught on. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. So kind of high level, the qualified business income deduction, that's a whole separate tax vehicle that was put under the TCG, the Tax Cut Act or the Trump Tax yeah. Cuts, this makes which sense. allows non, like lawyers, doctors, accountants, we can't take that in our business, but real estate investors, architects, and, you know, pretty much everyone, but. Yeah. He got the real estate investors in there. So thanks Trump for that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they're in there. So the key, what that allows, if you had $100,000 in profit in your company, you, right off the top, you can take $20,000 away as the QBID. So you're only paying on that $80,000, and then you start deducting your other costs. So that makes sense, Matt. I, I thought it was you went to passive to active, and that was causing me a tax issue. But by going from passive to active, you lost the QBID, which is a different tax strategy. Yeah, and, and I still, I guess where I don't understand that, too, is to, just because you can take the, the the carryover deduction doesn't mean you have to, right? Becoming a real estate professional. Doesn't just give you more options, Pete? Yeah, I think it would depend on your software. Most of the software, I think, automatically carries, will zero out your income, in, mm -hmm. in my experience. So you could maybe back that out manually. I'm not sure on TurboTax how it does that. I know on our Drake accounting software that I use to do taxes. You whoa, whoa, whoa. Does anybody in this group use TurboTax? I mean, I, I guess if you've just got a couple of rentals, but I mean. No, I have. I have since 2000. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I used to do my own taxes, but as soon as I got, you know, to a certain level, it just, uh, a, a properties just became where it was worth paying somebody else to do it. But uh, 
Well, it's it's not so much the paying to do the taxes. It's the more the understanding of uh, how to strategize for the taxes. Right. So right. Uh, every time I make a business decision, I understand how the taxes work. It's not at the end of the year, just dumping all these papers on his desk saying, hey, do my taxes, you know. But I mean, you're very savvy with your tax write-off, but yeah, and I've kept my liability really low. Oh, that's something to learn, man. A high-paying uh, W-2 job, so I've got a wife, yep. so she she gets a. We kind of like work together and get our tax liability low. Uh, got it. But I actually am going to be probably switching over because uh, it's getting. I I don't have a W-2 job anymore, and we're doing some more development stuff, so. Yeah. Nice. So that's one topic I wrote down for kind of a future um, lunch, not lunch and uh, tax Tuesday tax thing is uh, we'll do one on the qualified business income deduction probably in May then. Pete, how long is that? Is that going to 25 or? I believe it expires in 25 when the rest, when the majority of the tax law expires, but I, I really don't know. It, it depends on elections. <laughs> <laughs> True. It could all be changed in two years. So, um, and isn't that limited to? I mean, uh, if you make over a certain amount, that's you can't take that deduction as well. That there's like a kind of a. I know you can if you're an accountant or an attorney or, or some other professions. I think doctors too. Um, but it, you know, isn't it also if you make over a certain amount of money in, in that particular entity, you can't use the 20% off or it's limited to a certain number amount of money. It is, it, it, there is a threshold. Um, and do you know, is it combined with all, I mean, cause I mean, if you have multiple entities, is it on a per entity basis or is it on a, an aggregate basis for the individual taxpayer? I mean, I would assume not since most businesses or a lot of businesses have multiple partners. So I don't know how you could do it as an aggregate, but. Mostly how I've seen it is it's based on your filing status, whether you're single, head of household, married, filed jointly. The, the qualified business 20% deduction we're talking about? And I'm probably getting the name wrong. Yeah, I'm trying to pull that up and read at the same time. Um, Are you losing me? No, I, I hear you. I'm trying to find the exact dollar amount because it's oh. aggregated through trades or businesses. So... I think I'd have to do it as a total. Yeah, I can hear you, Matt. I, I think. Is everyone else able to hear me? Uh, I, I can hear me now? Yeah. 329 grand, it looks like. It's the top. Or married filed jointly? Yeah. Yeah, 429? I'm reading 329. Okay. 329.8, to be more specific, for 2021. Okay, I'm seeing 429 on my tax thing, so that might be for 22. So that's something I'll get flowed out for us on our presentation in May, and I'll try to post in Discord as well. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you're feeling overwhelmed with taxes as they relate to your real estate business and investments, or you're unsure if you're doing your accounting correctly, fill out our five-minute quiz. With the information from this quiz, you'll schedule a meeting with a Royal Legal Solutions advisor who will provide you with powerful tax-saving strategies on your first call. Go to www.royallegalsolutions.com tax to fill it out.